In this episode of Startups of the Rest of Us, Einar and I talk about U.S. corporate structures, taxes, and why what you do now can impact you years down the line. This is Startups of the Rest of Us, episode 442. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Einar. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So where this week, sir? Uh, you know, it's uh, same old, same old. I'm mostly spending my time uh, arguing with lawyers and accountants and things around tiny seeds. So uh, that's always exciting. It's probably been... Oh, since before MicroConf, it's been nonstop lawyering pretty much. So that's both expensive and frustrating at the same time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had, I was looking at some notes I had from a couple years ago. I found this old notebook and I had some goals, personal goals that I didn't announce on the podcast, but personal goals for myself. And I said, one of the bullets was, I don't want to talk to any lawyers this year for any reason. <laughs> it was like 2017 or something. It was. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's been, that's been kind of a. Yeah, it's been unavoidable for me lately, and uh, mostly with tiny seed stuff. Like the main, actually, the main hurdle, and I guess we'll get get into this later, is like the main hurdle has been like you go to these. Like, there are lawyers who have specialize in whatever, right? You know, like you wouldn't go to a securities lawyer if you need to be, you know, defended for you know a hit and run. But you, you talk to lawyers, and they're sort of specialists, and the expensive ones for for securities and and fund formation, and and they they have their way of doing it, and it's the way that norm venture capital is normally done, and they just you know essentially you're having to spend a thousand dollars an hour arguing with somebody about how things should be done. <laughs> right, it's trying to uh, trying to educate them that we're not traditional venture capital, right? It's like not going to all be Delaware C corps, and you know that's that's part of what you know we mentioned early on to the lawyers, and we've been now through a couple a couple different firms, but. <laughs> We told them early on this it's going to be more bootstrap startups. That's our that's our thing. And so there's going to be, we're going to fund LLCs, we're going to fund C corps, and they're not all going to be in Delaware. But then when we get rubber meets the road, all the docs made the assumption of Delaware C, right? Delaware C corp, uh, a ban on issuing dividends, which clearly doesn't work with us. Yeah, uh, you know, and all sorts of things. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been quite frustrating and and and, and a bit more expensive than I was expecting to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to go because we're just kind of going against the tide of of so many funds, right? I mean, I, I oh yeah, the standard. I mean, the standard tide. You know, the standard is like we only take Delaware C corporations. You know, disallow any kind like at a corporate level, disallow any kind of dividends because you know people want to reinvest and, and just do you know Delaware C corps and that's it. Yeah, and and issue safes ideally. You know, like this the standard one, which again assumes that there is a price round coming. Um, so yeah, that's been interesting to say the least. Yep. And that's really the impetus for this episode, right? Is, is to give folks a little more background in case they don't know who you are. You and I have, have co-founded Tiny Seed. We spoke about this about 20 episodes ago. It was episode 420, uh, an alternative form of startup funding where we talked through Tiny Seed and the mission and all that. Yep. So, you know, folks can go back and listen to that if they want more background, but you and I are in the midst of, of getting this off the ground and we're, we're picking the first batch and closing in on all that stuff. But really legal has now become the, the bottleneck and it's getting these, these terms in there. And as we were knee deep in this, having these conversations, you know, via email when I was in London and then, you know, getting back and doing calls and stuff, you brought up, you were like, you know, there's a lot of miss. I think kind of misunderstanding, misinformation may be the wrong word. It's more like misunderstanding or just lack of knowledge with startup founders about the different entity types 
and and granted, this episode we're going to focus on U.S. entities, and there's a few reasons for that. One is even if you're not in the U.S., a lot of folks do start U.S. entities if they're going to take any funding or if they're going to cater to the U.S. market or there's tax reasons. There's a bunch of reasons. So if if you're living in Europe right now, some of this still may apply to you. You very well may wind up setting up a U.S. entity at some point. But even even beyond that. What I've often seen is is while the laws don't translate one to one, there is generally, you know, in in England and in most of Europe, there's the equivalent of these things. A C, there's the equivalent of a C corp that has double tax, right? And there's the equivalent of the LLC, even though it's not called the same thing. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, the standard disclaimer applies. You and I are not lawyers. It's not legal advice and all that. But damn it, I kind of feel like I'm getting becoming a lawyer. Given how, 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 <laughs> well, you going to go to law school now? This is the plan. Just quit all the tiny stuff and, and sign up. And hire that you. would be my worst nightmare. It's, <laughs> but, but it's like, you know, we're, we're having to get pretty knee deep into it. And, and I think the fact that, that traditionally bootstrapped companies typically form as LLCs or S-corps. And VC-backed companies traditionally, um, I wouldn't say traditionally, I guess almost always form as Delaware C-Corps, right? Yeah, I mean, like the standard thing in YC is like you come into YC and you have A, another entity, a foreign entity or no entity. They kick you to, I think it's another YC company, Clerky, and they just spin you up with like, uh, here's how to do, you know, a Delaware C-Corporation. That's what you need in order to get the investment from us. Yep. So, so that's very much the state. And that, you know, it assumes like with their investment structure, you know, and, and YC is so dominant that pretty much whatever YC does on the accelerator early stage fund side, that's what everyone else copies. So it becomes a Delaware C-Corp and a safe. Right. And so what we're going to talk through today is talk through the different corporate entities. We're going to attempt to not make it the most boring episode ever of this podcast. <laughs> you should just call it the most boring episode ever. <laughs> that should be the title. That'll be something. Yeah. And and we'll we'll touch on points like liability versus taxes. I mean, I think taxes is really the big thing with most of these, right? Because once you have an LLC at S-Corp, C-Corp, you do have a certain amount of liability shield. I've heard that if you're a single member LLC in certain states, you know, the court, if you got sued, court will often like not, you know, consider you a sole proprietor. Yeah, you don't have a liability, but we're not, we're not going to get into that. So there's, a, we're going to talk a lot about taxes, I think, today, because that's the thing, right? If you pull dividends out, how are they taxed differently? What's the main difference? I mean, that's the difference between like a traditional y, like, you know, YC venture style company and, and like a bootstrapped, you know, quote unquote lifestyle business. You're going to basically go through several runs of funding while you, you know, run at a loss. That's the goal. So it doesn't really matter like tax optimization for dividends or the owners pulling out cash doesn't really apply because there should be none. And in fact, you might find that your investors are, you know, more than a little upset if you start actually running at a profit because that's not the goal. The goal is to become, you know, burn all the money, dominate the market and, and, and IPO or sell. Right. Raise every 18 months. And if yeah, you're not burning that. through that cash, if you're not burning through that cash, you're not spending it well. You're you're wasting time and kind of wasting their money, right? Because if they're going to give you money and have you sit, let it sit in your bank account, it would be better served doing something else. That's a mentality. Yeah, it's true. And like honestly, like a lot of VCs will basically tell you they would prefer like if you if you're in a company that's you know growing reasonably well and you know what we you know tiny seed or most bootstrap founders would consider a success say you get the, you know 5 6 million dollars a year and you're 
profitable, but you don't then don't need any more uh, venture fund. I think that's you know that's that's a that's a loss for them. They would actually prefer you just to sell the company, uh, you know, pocket some money and 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 try again and have a run at a bigger success. Yep, and so that's I mean that kind of brings us into the meat of this episode, right? There's in in the U.S. structure aside from just being a sole proprietor, there are really these three kind of entities that are that are most common. I already mentioned them in this episode. A C corp, which is that. I mean, that's what the big company, right? Every Fortune 500 company, I'm guessing, is a, is a C corp. If you go public, you're a C corp. I, I don't know that you can go public with other structures, but that that's the big one. And it's as we've said, that's what the venture capitalists typically Delaware C corp. And the nice part about that is there's no there's no pass through income, so that if you had a hundred different people on your cap table. You had a hundred different people or entities that owned a piece of your C corp. At the end of the year, if you make a million dollars and keep it inside the company, nobody else gets taxed on it, right? They're like shielded from the taxes. It doesn't count as income until you pull that money out of the company and actually distribute it to your shareholders. Yeah, because that's the challenge. That's really the challenge for with LLCs in, in, in that regard, in general pass-through entities, whether that's partnerships or, you know, a single member or sole proprietor or, you know, a, a C-Corp doing an S-selection, S is that you end up basically passing through whatever losses and gains to, you know, the people who own the company, whether that's, you know, investors or, or just the owners. And if you do that with, you could in, be in a situation where, there is a gain, but you're not actually kicking out the gain so that there's there's sort of taxes to be paid without any profits, any cash to pay for it for the investors, which is partly why traditional venture funds don't like to do it. And in some cases, actually, the investors into the fund themselves aren't actually in a position to, uh, they're, they're sort of disregarded entities. So, you know, they could be not-for-profits, they could be university endowments, they can be people, individual, you know, wealthy individuals who uh, invest through like a self-directed IRA. In most of those cases, they actually don't pay taxes, so they don't file tax returns. And, and you know, if, if, you, if you pass through a gain or a loss to them, all of a sudden they have to pay, start filing tax returns just because of, you know, because of you, which is, which is problematic in a lot of cases, which is partly why it's, uh, it's disallowed. All right. So, you know, in my experience forming corporate entities, my consulting firm that then w was this umbrella entity over all of my early small software products, and it still is, frankly, I've changed the name of it now, but it was called N the Numa Group for years. So, uh, you know, I, I ran it for five years just as a sole proprietorship, and then I made it an LLC. And the reason I did LLC instead of, well, certainly I wouldn't have done a C-Corp, right? Because I was just pulling a bunch of cash off of it. And that's the thing we didn't say. Like the negatives of a C-Corp, if you're a bootstrapper, are that you, the corporation itself will pay taxes at the end of the year. And if you want to pull dividends out, you then pay another round of income tax. So it's called double taxation. So if you're pulling cash off a business, you do not want it in general to be a C-Corp. And so when I was forming the Numa Group as an as a entity, and it was really more for liability reasons at the time, just to, to shield me from anything, it was, I could do an LLC or an S-Corp. And I was advised that an LLC, if you do like a single member pass-through LLC, that it, that it has less filing requirements, less even less bookkeeping stringency, uh, you know, complexity. So I I, I did that and that's been fine. I think that was a good call for me. And then when when I went to spin Drip out, so Drip started as just just like Hittail and all my other stuff. It was just under Numa Group LLC. And eventually Drip got big enough where it's like it has to be its own thing. So when I spun that out, 
I could make it uh, an LLC or an S corp. And really an S corp, as you said earlier, I think, right. It's just a C corp with an S filing something or other, like an option. Uh, yeah, it's a federal. It's basically to do with federal taxes. So this is as you, you make what's called a, an S selection. And again, I am not a lawyer <laughs> or a tax accountant, thank God. But you know, you basically file an election with the with the IRS, essentially saying I, I want to be treated as essentially you'll be taxed in a very similar way to an LLC, despite the fact that you're a corporation. Now, doing so actually has benefits from tax, you know, from from certain tax standpoints, but it comes with certain certain issues relating to it. So for example, you know, if you're an S corporation, typically it becomes very hard to take investments. There's a limit on the number of uh, stockholders you can hold in the company. There's actually a limit on whether you're allowed to have uh, non-US persons as investors or owners. So there's a bunch of things that come into play there, you know, if you if you do the S selection for sure. Yeah, because my you know the advice we've been given is that Tiny Seed can fund C corps and LLCs, but we cannot fund S corps. Definitely not. Yeah. Right, and that's interesting. I didn't know that, and I believe it's that another corporate entity cannot own a portion of an S corp. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, not not a lawyer, but that was how it's explained to me. But that was news because right because Drip was an S corp, and I didn't realize when we formed it that that was a drawback. I mean, we didn't we hadn't planned to take institutional funding, but I was looking, you know, when we got acquired, I was looking around trying to do an angel round and that would have worked because I it probably would have been a bunch of individuals, but I just hadn't, I wasn't aware of that at the time. So, yeah. And I think most people aren't like, you, know, you start up and it's just people go to like, you know, clerky or legal zoom or, you know, ask their, their friendly neighborhood lawyer. And it's just like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do like a single member LLC. Don't think about it. Or just, you know, do X, Y, Z. And, you know, in certain cases, people will optimize for their current tax situation, but not necessarily for like, you know, what's going to happen, you know, if I want to sell the business or if I want to, you know, have it do a small angel round or, or, or that kind of thing. So, yeah. And that's, well, that's an interesting point because, you know, again, over the years when things were really simple for me, I, I just did an LLC and it was even as a, you know, it filed its taxes as a sole proprietorship. So everything passed through to me. I didn't take a salary, you know, it was none of that. Now at a certain point, it started making enough money that my CPA said, look, you should switch the, keep it as an LLC, but you file taxes as an S corp. And that allows you to now take a salary and you set a fair market salary. What does a CEO of a small software company make in the town you live in? And since it was Fresno, they, it isn't that high actually. And everything above that, you just take out as an owner's draw and then you don't pay. Yeah. It's FICA and so is that social security? You don't taste social security? Our social security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Medicare and taxes and things or anything above that. Yeah. Yep. And so that's a strategy that's that's used by a lot of folks with both S Corps and LLCs filing as S Corps in essence. So, and I think my, you know, there, there's some number and I've heard varying, it, it depends on the CPA, but like my CPA said, it's well, when you were making between about 60 and 70 K from the entity, but I talked to someone the other day and they said their CPA told them 50 and someone else said 90 or something. So there's some range in there. My, my CPA is pretty, is pretty mellow. She's like, yeah, 90, I think 95. I mean, I live in the Bay area too. So she's like 95, she's fine with. And I was like, why don't we make it 50? And she's like, why don't we not? Yeah. Oh, the salary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just because of it the extra taxes, you know, it's uh, employment taxes. In California, have their own taxes on things uh, on top of the the federal FICA taxes. Right, right. So it seems you know if you're bootstrapping a business, the odds are 
pretty high. You're going to do an S-Corp or you're going to do an LLC just because C-Corp just wouldn't make sense. And if you're plan to raise venture funding, you know, you're probably going to go the C-Corp route, although... Except if you take funding from us. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, but it's interesting because you, you just mentioned someone could go anywhere on the internet and kind of research the taxes and stuff we've just talked about. But the interesting thing we were talking, you and I were talking about before this episode started is the difference of if you decide to sell the company at some point and, and the difference between, you know, if, if you've never sold a company, you've never even thought about asset sale, selling the assets within the comp the corporate, but not actually selling the corp itself versus a stock sale, which is where you literally hand someone all the stock and they take the corporate entity with it. Correct. Including the, the assets and the liability, crucially. Right. And that's the thing that I've seen is, and you have more experience with this in, in the work you've been doing with discretion capital over the past several years, but my kind of vague understanding has been that in smaller acquisitions, they tend to be smaller, meaning, I don't know, some sub 10 million, sub 20 million, whatever, that they tend to be asset sales where you as the business owner, you keep the corporate entity and you keep all the liabilities in essence, and the acquirer buys the assets. Whereas if it's some big, you know, my guess is when Mark Zuckerberg bought Instagram, they probably bought all the stock. Yeah, they bought the whole thing. So, so typically like a stock sale is essentially you're taking the whole company, all assets, all liabilities, every single contract that this thing is so including like if you buy a company and a, an employee from three years ago sues you over something, sues the company, then then you have to defend that claim. So there's a bunch of sort of challenges around around doing a stock sale, and it includes the fact that if you if you purchase a company as a stock sale, that's actually not as as beneficial as doing it as an asset sale for the buyer. So. What, with an asset sale, so what you can do as a buyer is they come in and they say, okay, we want to buy just this specific piece. So we might buy the technology, the goodwill, the existing contracts with customers, that sort of thing. And we'll, we'll ex explicitly exclude everything else. So any liability that you sign, any contracts that they don't want to assume, all that kind of thing will remain in the sort of what's now essentially a shell entity. And then the other benefit, which, which is often why buyers will push for it, an asset sale that is, is that um, they get a tax break from doing an asset sale versus a stock purchase. So they often will pay more for this exactly the same thing in an asset sale compared to a stock sale. So what and and the specifics here is gets into tax law and accounting so <laughs> you definitely don't want my advice on that but fundamentally with an asset sale what you're able to do is to essentially reset the depreciation on those assets and the value of those assets essentially becomes well it's the purchase price right so if you paid $5 million for an asset. My understanding is you essentially can reset the depreciation of that, that $5 million, those assets, aka those $5 million. And then going forward, you can have that offset any income. So if you're doing a $5 million asset thing on, on uh, something like this, it's, it's quite easily a million dollar tax break in the, in the coming years, which is, might translate to the buyers you know, paying significantly more for an asset uh, purchase. Right. So the, the buyer gets that tax break, right? Right. Yeah. Because you essentially you say, like, I bought this asset and it depreciates over time. Right, right. And if it's stock sale, you can't do that. You're just taking it over and you can't re essentially you can't reset the depreciation on the asset. Versus with an asset sale, you, you're allowed to do that, which is why it's so beneficial. 
Right, right. Let me say that I bootstrap a company, and for some reason I set it up as a C corp because I think I'm going to raise funding at some point, and I get acquired for five million bucks, but it's an asset sale, meaning they buy all the assets within the C corp, but I keep the C corp. So five million bucks gets dumped into the C corp. The C corp pays income tax on that. Then, if I want to pull that money out to myself, I then pay my own personal income tax. So you get double taxes, which is a it can be a huge amount of money, right? It can be a really big difference. I mean, because it's essentially like corporate tax levels currently is 21%. And, and a lot of the time what happens is people essentially shut down the company because it's, you know, they sold essentially the, the core of it. And so they take the $5 million, it goes in, and then, you know, they'll, they'll kick out whatever expenses they can. But, you know, most people don't have regular expenses that would, you know, wipe out $5 million. And then they then have to pay corporate taxes on it, which is 21%. And then they have whatever's left. And at that point, they can then pass it through to the owners. So, I mean, the benefit is that that can be, you know, long-term capital gains if you hold the company for long enough, but it's still, you know, it adds up quite quickly. Right. Whereas if you had that C-Corp and it was a stock sale, then it would you would just sell stock and it'd be hopefully long-term gains, assuming you owned that stock for, for more than a year. But that's the tricky part. If it, Whereas if you had that S-Corp and you had bootstrapped it and it was an asset sale, then, you know, you'd save that 21% of extra tax and that's that's a tricky thing. You don't know what's going to happen, but you're just you know doing your best to prepare for it. And something you said to me, I had never heard of this, but this almost sounds like a bizarre loophole. Is this qualifying small business stock? So just to throw another wrench into this, is if you you have a C corp and you've owned it for five years, then so there's a bunch of qualifiers here. So there's like if you have a C corp that was formed, I think after this law came in, th this this rule came in. So it's like okay, after it's it's a while ago now. So it's you, you probably if you hold it for for a fair amount of time, you you probably you it's probably after this date. But essentially, say if you, after a certain date, if you formed it, but on top of that, you've hold it for five years. And it qualifies under these other criteria, which I don't have right in front of me, but essentially they're like they're sub 25 million or something like that. And there's a bunch of other qualifier stuff here. But if you do that and essentially your stock in the C Corp are, you know, is counted as a, as qualifying small business stock, then you pay no federal taxes whatsoever, including no long term capital gains. That's crazy. And is that if it's a stock sale or an asset sale? Uh, that would have to be a stock sale on specifically on a C corp. Got it. Okay. Yeah, and it doesn't apply if you did if you then did an S corporation election like a couple of years before because that's tax beneficial. Then you don't qualify. Right. So there you go. I mean, it's it's you know it's it's complicated stuff. And I mean, I think what we've realized, you know, to, to kind of turn it to to tiny seed because we've been trying to figure out what can we fund, what should we fund, and and we at this point, you know, we're able to. It looks like we're able to fund C corps and LLCs with specific. You know, there's some specific tax structures. I, I don't think we can do individual single member LLCs due to some type of tax complexity or whatever. Well, it's not even tax complexity. It's the fact that like, if we own a stake in that LLC, it becomes a multi-member LLC and it's no longer a single member LLC. Oh, that's right. You can't do a single. So it has to convert to a partnership. Yep. And now it will mean that we have folks applying who might have a, you know, whatever, a Colorado LLC. And so Tiny Seed will get a K-1, you know, which is the LLC equivalent of saying, hey, you own part of this and we filed taxes and here's kind of a, a document showing how much your portion made or, or lost. 
And then Tiny Seed will likely have to file a state income tax return in that state. State income taxes. And yeah, there's actually even a question about whether our our investors will then have to turn around and file their own income taxes in various states. So it's, I mean, it's certainly a challenge. I mean, there's a reason why the lawyers say, you know, just do a safe and a C corp and, and, and why it's more complicated doing this other way. It's certainly most venture investing isn't set up to do what we're trying to do. Right. And that's been one of the challenges. That's also one of the ways that we're trying to change this, right? Is change this landscape to allow people to have an LLC and to take funding from essentially a, I mean, I hate to say it's institutional or whatever, you know, we are institutional money technically because we're not investing our own, we are investing our own money, but in addition to other people, you know, who have put the money into, uh, into our fund. So, so yeah, I think that, I think that kind of sums up the feelings and the, and the thoughts that we've been kind of digging into all the stuff surrounding these corporate entities. Cause frankly, I've been running, you know, I've been running a business for approaching 20 years now, different businesses. And I felt like I had a handle on most of this. And it turns out every time I dig into this stuff, I learn something new about it. Yeah, I mean, and that, I mean, that happens to me too. It's like, yeah, and I, I had a conversation with somebody and, and this like qualifying small business stock thing was, he, he was looking to sell his business and I told him and he, it turns out he qualified and he was quite surprised, pleasantly so, I think. But uh, yeah, it's, it's an odd thing. It's, and people think, you know, it is also, you got to think about like, how easy is it to convert between the various things? Like if you've already filed as an S corp, like it's not actually straightforward just to go back to a C corp. There are some hangovers there and it, and, and actually, you know, different states actually treat these kind of things differently. So it's, it's not easy. And it, it's, it's actually quite hard for us. I think to people come and they're like, well, what should we do? Like, should we do an LLC or an S corp or, or, or a C corp or what, what should we do? And it, in part, it's up to them. Like they have to decide what they think is the most important. And we can only sort of just lay it out for them to say, okay, well, here's the pros and the cons. It depends roughly what you're, what you're looking to do. Right. Because if you wind up selling in an asset sale versus a stock sale versus never selling and just, you know, running it, pulling dividends out and being profitable, each of those has its own, you know, kind of its own ideal structure. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think at a very high level, I think it's fair to say that, you know, if, if you don't think you're going to take uh, you know, a bunch of investment. If you don't think you're going to IPO or sell for hundreds of millions of dollars, you can imagine this business becoming something that sells for sub $20 million, say, then chances are that that with the with the tax structure and, and the fact that you'll probably get more money for an asset sale versus a stock sale, you're probably better off with an LLC, I should think. But it's hard to know. It's like, you know, who knows that any given company can turn around and becoming much bigger than you thought. And then you have to deal with the headaches of your choices you made earlier. Yep. So talk to a lawyer for sure. You know, I I did when I spun drip out, it was essentially just an asset under this umbrella, that umbrella corp I had. And and it was, while it was painful and took a few months, I basically spun it out into its own S corp and and all that worked out well. So these things are doable. It's just how complicated you know how far down the line you are if it's a taxable event right then you get into that's sort of the main thing is like there's certain there are certain things that are easy and like you can go from one to another it might be easy but going back might be hard or or might be delayed or take time or have tax implications so you know there's a reason the tax accounts get paid so much money (laughs) Mm -hmm. indeed so hopefully we haven't bored you to death today for those of you who are still with us. I'm feeling but, kind of sleepy, so I don't I mean, know. <laughs> Got to go drink some coffee. So if you have a question for us, 
not about this topic because I hope to never speak about it again. Uh, you can call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.